Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. After a traumatic event, there is a responsibility to tend to the well-being of attending staff and individual personnel leading the command. This includes preparing for, giving evidence in and supporting staff post-inquest. Building a response capability and a workplace where relationships are positive, respectful and supportive are the cornerstones of good outcomes. Dedicated to building resilience in workplaces and communities is this week's guest, Alan Sickard, trained at a national level as, pl- as police forward commander in counter-terrorism. Alan was a police commander for the Mossman Collar Bomb incident in August 2011, which was the first real test of Australia's response to a potential terrorist incident. Working with emergency partners, Alan assisted in forming a trauma plan should the worst have happened, allowing the rest of the non-incident community to function while providing authorization for the device to be removed. Four years later, Alan was forward police commander for the first two hours of Sydney's Lint Cafe siege. Alan was responsible for setting up a a staging area for emergency agencies to work in, whilst creating a traffic plan that allowed the rest of the city to function. These first two hours saw the coordination of mass evacuations in the inner perimeter, all the while managing the evolving risk and briefing of relevant stakeholders. Today, Alan prepares workplaces and communities for the next high-risk event by leading large high-risk event desktop exercises with over 100 stakeholders in an auditorium for over three hours of immersive exercises, where key objectives are to learn capabilities and build trust and preparedness. Tune in as Alan talks with me about his personal experiences in emergency response and how we can build greater resilience and support across our different emergency service sectors. Hello, Alan. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Sam, for um, inviting me. It's, um, it's a privilege to be asked by you to, to do this today, so thank you. No, it's a pleasure. Um, Alan, if you just want to give everyone a little bit of a, a background into um, your professional background as to okay. where it all started for you. and yeah. right. So I'm an ex-New South Wales police officer. I joined in March 1980 and I recently retired um, in March 2020. 40, uh, 40, 40 years, years of the, service for, to the day yeah, yeah wow yeah so it was pretty um pretty exciting time you know, I had a had a great career finished on a you know at the time worked with a great bunch of people at uh, North Shore Police Area Command um and a great bunch of people it's time to write a new chapter so um the last 15 years of that was as at, at, was at my retiring rank as superintendent and a police commander for 15 years yeah so the 80s you you joined, I mean, you would have seen some changes over your time. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. everything changed. <laughs> totally. And how do you feel like things have gotten to, I mean, compared to when you started 
Well, um, I, I have the utmost admiration for police officers now. Um, like when we were, like when we joined in 1980, we were 11 week wonders basically, um, and we didn't. We knew what we knew, the technology at the time, but you look at the new police officer now, what they have to know, how they're across all the social media, the internet, they're amazing. Uh, totally yeah. amazing. <laughs> and when you say 11-week one, you mean the induction process? Well, we were. It took us 11 weeks to be trained to be a police officer. Wow. Uh, whereas a police officer now has to go through so much. So much. And it's such a um, competitive job, like the New South Wales Police in particular. Um, there's a waiting list for, you know, a couple of years in. to get in yeah. yeah yeah and it's months of training yes he is yeah yeah yeah, yeah well uh and, and ongoing education as well i assume compared to when you started there's some good ongoing learning opportunities yeah yeah well as i went through like i've done everything um yeah and that's the beauty about being a police officer you can do whatever you want like i was um started off with general duties then high patrol rescue squad special operations squad special weapons i mean um detectives everything uh, it's a great job yeah so you've obviously delved into a lot of different aspects of the within the police force yes. is, is there any particular standouts for you that you uh you know you really enjoyed i think what i finished with being a commander for the last 15 years like you learn how to lead people and get the and get people to work with you um you don't you probably make mistakes early on but yeah the older you get the better you get at it and um yeah. and people want to follow you um probably the best two things if you're going to ask of me was a rescue squad um you know to to see people that you've helped walk back in and um that you didn't think would ever walk again walk back in and thank you it's pretty, yeah. pretty amazing um and detectives was pretty amazing as well like i was 14 15 years as a detective wow yeah, so yeah what made you want to get into the police? I mean, going back to 1980, was it was it in the family? Is it something you always wanted to do to help uh, the community? I think it's every most police officers want to make a difference. It's, yeah. in, it's in our DNA to to serve and make a difference. So, yeah, pretty well it. Yeah, I mean, we know it's not for the money. I mean, we know it's not for the. I mean, there's some some of the roles. In fact, a lot of the roles that the police uh, do. Um, to some degree, are uh, pretty thankless as well. So I don't. I really don't think you'd do it for that. Um, like s some of the examples I just gave, um, the rescue yeah. squad, uh, and being a commander that last fifteen years in particular, to, to see people develop, to see communities develop, and you do make a difference at a bigger level. Um, and like I, I've done a lot of leadership training for years, and see see some young cops switch on and become leaders in their own right it's extremely rewarding yeah. yeah how over your over the 40 years experience in the force have you seen the awareness around uh, mental health particularly with the the police officers have you seen any the development of that have you seen it become a lot more um the less stigma around all that have you, are you seeing changes in that i think um yes um but uh, we as a commander in particular, like uh, 15 years ago, I didn't know much about mental health. Um, yeah. Over the last probably five to six years, definitely, I've got an understanding of it. And I, I kind of rate my own performance and my, and my own team's performance on on whether we let people go down that path um, of being mentally ill. And ho and set, set, and that's what I've done the last few years really is, um, is get, try and get better at that create support around the people that I lead and the whole team 
So our kind of culture is around creating a, a supportive and kind culture. Uh, and then out of that, you get, you get a dynamic workplace that, that looks after each other. So you speak about the kind culture. That's something that obviously you're big on. Tell us how that came about and, and what that really means. Well, I've, as I said, I do a lot of uh, – I've done leadership training for the last probably 13-odd years and I've learnt that um, human beings essentially want three things. They want to belong. They want to have the freedom uh, to create their own um, – uh, career path and they want the freedom to use their own initiative um, so if I as a boss as I'm a, 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 I'm a micromanager uh, and don't give them the freedom to do that um, and then it becomes a blame culture um, that's not kind uh, my job ultimately I, I've learned it over time I wasn't perfect at it <laughs> but you, you get better at it um, if I create an environment where it's a learning culture except people are doing their best um, and, and let people develop along the way, um, you end up with a culture that, uh, that is supportive. Um, you don't let workplace bullying in, you don't let sexual harassment in, you don't let um, harassment in, and you just jump, jump on that. And, and, you, and I, it's not up to me then, it's up to the whole command. So as a commander, you, get up, you nearly get up every day in front of a, a briefing of staff, you talk about it. And you give examples of it, you walk around, you know, I spend my first two or three hours of every day in the last three or four years walking my way up three, three levels of a police station to make sure how's, how people go. And, that, and you just reaffirm it and then all of a sudden everyone starts to talk about it and they even look after your welfare. It's such a key distinction you mentioned. So, I mean, from the leader's point of view, you can set the standard and the culture and, and modelling the behaviour you want to see but ultimately, you need everybody else to want to own it as well, right? Yes. A- and almost champion it because at the end of the day, what you walk by, you... Um, yes. They yeah. say you, what, what you walk past is what you tolerate or something? What, what you walk past today, you accept. You right? accept, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is you don't want it. So, yeah. um, so, so along those lines, and this is probably what I'm going to talk about a little bit today, um, when you go to some of the jobs we go to, like... Um, uh, and we're going to, you know, I'm, I'm here to talk about the, the, the Mossman collar bomb in 2011 mm-hmm. and the, the first two hours of the Link Cafe in the end of December 2014. Um, when you go into those jobs and when you come out of those jobs, um, some people are hurt. You know, they're mentally hurt and, and damaged even. Um, but if I create an environment, because they, they're, they're going to happen again. <laughs> like that happened in Burke Street in Melbourne twice. Of, yeah. I know the commander that did both those jobs. Um, so if we as a leader prepare our people to go into those things, um, uh, go into those jobs and know what to expect, um, we're giving them a chance to actually uh, have the confidence and the capabilities and the resilience to, to deal with that job. So one of the things I learnt out of that, and I only learnt this... Um, Recently, like you asked me, how do you get better at doing this? Um, so I don't think you might have um, had him here before, um, uh, an ex-police officer from New South Wales called Alan Sparks. Yes, he yeah. came to our first front line. Yes, yes, I think yeah. he was one of your keynote speakers. Yes, he was. So when Reese, probably in the last 18, year, 18 months, two years, I did a two-day high-risk workshop for all of my supervisors and all of our inspectors. So that was up to 50 people. Um, and so I, expo- I gave them exposure to the Burke Street commander 
um, the, the Link Cafe commander who was there when they went in um, and had to deal with how many people died and how many people were shot. Um, my story about the Link Cafe. And then we got Al Alan Sparks up to talk about his experience. And he talks about, and I'm going to talk about it today, um, a mental health continuum. I don't know whether you've heard about it. There's, there's four columns. And if you're in the third and fourth column, like most probably first responders that have been around for a while um, are in those columns, um, you realise, well, I need to get out of those columns. So what we did now, when we taught everyone that, that concept, you know, that mental health continuum, we put every one of those, that, it's just a little chart. Um, and there's another chart that goes with it about what, how, you, how you implement it. We put them on every, behind every toilet door <laughs> in our police yeah. station, in our meal rooms. Every police officer in our police station had a notebook guide on them. So that if you talked about you gotta, it's got to be everyone's business. So what's, what happened after Alf Sparks' presentation and the supervisors saw it and I saw it? People started to talk to, they come up to Al Sicko and say, Al, are you all right? Are you going okay? So it was support. Um, I had an example of one of my team members was a little bit out of shape and I could say, rather than say, you're pissing everyone off, um, I could say, I could see some of the things in column three and column four or that mental health continuum and ask, are you, ultimately, are you okay? And I, so it's a lot kind of, com kind of conversation rather than you, you shit at your job. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. out of that, you get some momentum because people know the whole place cares. So it's a reference tool in that respect, yes. right? So that you can actually point to it and, and then almost have that awareness of how they're feeling and how that's impacting yes. their role. Yes. And it's and then all of a sudden it's a supportive culture. It's a yeah. kind culture. Yeah, and that's it, interesting. And, and you know, some of the, the sergeants that were there that day, they had staff that were um that were in trouble. You know, could have been in trouble, but because they made the approach from that from that standpoint, um, they ended up they made it, might have needed a little bit of help, but not for very long, and then they were back back in action again. Whereas in the past, we'd say that person's a cranky, yeah, bastard, yeah. Uh, and and leave them to their own own devices, and they'd go down the funnel. Yes, Alan, you sort of uh, so we we've touched on um, which we'll talk about more eventually, but workplace culture, which is in some respect very different to an incident that can occur at work and then as a result of that can affect people individually. So mm. work culture is the day-to-day, -day, we're in the office, we're there, how we treat each other, that sort of thing. Yep. But then when an incident comes along, like the Mossman Collar Bomb uh, incident, um, talk to us about, the, about your role with that firstly yep. and then the learnings from that for you guys. Okay, so... I was um, like, the, I'm a police commander, so the radio's on all the time. It was about two, two o'clock in the afternoon in August 2011, and it came over the police radio that uh, young Madeline, Madeline Pulver, an 18 year old uh, girl, was in her house in Mossman. A man came in that she didn't know and put a collar bomb around her neck with a ransom note. Balaclavas, baseball yep. bats. Yeah. Uh, balaclava, no baseball. He's a, he was an older bloke. He didn't okay. actually threaten her. But he just put it, you know, do as I tell you. I'll put it, I'll put it. And he put this around the neck with a long ransom note. So the, cop, the police that attended that job read out the ransom note over the air and it was obvious it was real. Listening to their voice, it was real. So I got on the air and said, I'm on my way. Um, I had two really good inspectors uh, that set up the scene, scene to that job. 
they set up a, you know really good perimeters um, so that we had a lot of room to, to work in because we knew it was going to be something pretty big. Um, and then I, I remember, and this is probably what you're pointing to, um, when I got there, the first briefing I got from the bomb squad guy, um, he said, uh, Mr Sicard, because uh, we had a, we left a policewoman with young Madeline Pulver, so she wouldn't be on her own. So she was the only one in the house yes. at that moment with Madeline. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So she was, she stayed in the house, so she didn't, so she had support. And the, and the police officer, a lady called Karen Loudon, had her own two-year-old child, you know, young child at the time, elected to stay behind and look after her. So the bomb squad uh, technician told me, Mr. Sickard, where your police officer is, if that bomb goes off, she's dead. Um, the second point was there's the success rate for removing a collar bomb worldwide is 0%. Uh, and the, the note, the ransom note alluded to another collar bomb incident in America um, only a couple of years before. It was on a two-hour timer. So that was the third point. So you, you kind of get that briefing and no one's ever had that briefing before. No. <laughs> so that that would be the first in Australia yes. that we've experienced such a thing. Is yes. that correct? Yeah, it went worldwide. Okay. It went worldwide pretty quick. Like our bomb squad guys were getting um, advice from all over the world about what to do with it, how to, how to, how to, how to remove it. Um, and then out of that, you just start uh, doing what you need to do. <laughs> um, so you, you do, your, you do your, uh, some of your stuff. So... Um, there's a whole procedure that happens around yeah. uh, negating that. So I, rather than slow up the whole thing, um, I work with, with uh, one of my strengths um, is working with our partners. You, you can't do it on your own. So I, I work really closely with uh, the fire brigade uh, commander and the ambulance commander. And we're still, the fire brigade and I are still, uh, commander and I are still mates to this day. And I still know the, the fire ambulance people, that the, the people have rotated through that. But we'd, we worked out, um, they told me that day, um, you need a trauma plan. I said, what's a trauma plan? I've heard of it. And I wouldn't have, wouldn't have known about it until they told me about it. Who, saw, who said that to you? The ambulance. The ambulance command, people, okay. Commander and the uh, fire brigade commander. Uh, so a trauma plan is if it goes bang, what are we going to do to help everyone? So they had um, firemen in all that air breathing apparatus, you know, this gear with the gas stuff and the, and the ambos ready. They had a plan worked out. If it goes bang, this is what we're going to do to get her out. Uh, get everyone out out of there so that so that's and by everyone at that point in time is it still the police officer and madeline or are we talking there's more people now? well what what happened um we had to get negotiators in um okay. to help and it's not quite unusual negotiators aren't used for that type of scenario but it was about Carmen and her calm and madeline pulled her down so yeah once the negotiators got there we rotated uh, our police officer out of there the bomb squad technicians in all their gear that you see in the war shows yeah. um, were, were there and the negotiators were there similarly kitted up talking to Madeline Pulwa at a, at a predominantly safe distance. Who would have no no gear on, like no no protective gear? Madeline Pulwa. Yes. No, no. So she would be, she'd be without all that seeing everybody else in that yes. room, which would be I mean, majorly tra traumatic, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a, she, was a, she ended up with a bravery, award, you know, an Australian bravery award yeah. out of it, but you never want to be in that position. No. You just couldn't imagine yourself or your daughter no. or someone, your friend. Well, my daughter's name is Madeline as well, and yeah. similar to similar in appearance to Madeline Pulver. Um, Madeline Pulver's got this beautiful, like, I don't know if you've seen pictures of it, she's a beautiful yes. young, young lady, um, uh, light blonde hair. Yeah. That day, her hair was brown in sweat. 
when you see the picture of it. So, you know, the people external to it thought it's a HSC hoax. But anyone that saw it said, this is real. And she was an amazing young lady how she came through that. Incredible. Yeah. So out of that, um, um, it came to the pass that uh, I needed a th- someone needed to give the authority to cut the... The bomb off. The, 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 coll- the collar, which was a big chain. Um, so when that happened, um, there was a lot, imagine, as you say, it's an international event. So there's a lot of rank around me at that time. How many hours into this? That was about six to seven hours into it. So the two-hour time frame had gone past. Um, and obviously everyone would have been bracing themselves for that. Yes. Because yeah. there was no contact at this point with the person. There's an email address and we identify that the email had and that legitimised okay. it had been um, the email had been established at Chicago Airport. I think so we knew it was real. Uh, so we, we, even at that time, we, we'd got in our investigators have found out where where it was initiated through Google. Google told us. Um, so at the time, the bomb technician came up to me, Mr. Sicard. We need authority to cut the device uh, off her neck. Uh, and at that time, as I said, there was a lot of rank around me. And I was like piggy in the middle. Everyone took a big step back and said, it's his, <laughs> it's his call. Um, so, so that was your call? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, uh, have we got time to tell yeah. yeah. So, um, so I went through the uh, – there was four things I had to say um, to, to give the authority. And this is, all happened in the six hours before. The bomb squad dogs have, indi- have sniffed the device um, and indicated that there's no, um, there's, there's no explosive odour. From their point of view, but that was unique in itself. Um, the bomb squad dogs had never been tested on a device on someone's body before. No. So, so they had to train train the dogs that night before they went into Madeline Pulver. You're kidding? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't tell Madeline that, did you? No, no, no. Okay. no, <laughs> I was no, say. no, no but they. Crikey. Yeah. So that's why. Wow. And then uh, the next thing they had to do was they put a, a keyhole camera because it's this thing had little had little holes in it and press buttons on the top, like a digital press button on the top. And you could see 90, you could see wires everywhere. So it looked legitimate, but they couldn't see um, explosives. So they said 90% sure it's not a bomb. Uh, and then what else was there? Uh, uh, x-ray, we had to x-ray it. So we got, because um, she's an 18-year-old woman, you don't want to x-ray her because she wants to yeah. have babies later on. So we had to get um, the, the, the lead gown from Royal North Shore Hospital. Put that on her Gosh. and then x-ray it. X-rays, again, identified all the wires um, and 90% sure it's not a bomb. Put a voltmeter on it, no volts. So I said, cut it. You know, after, after giving all that, cut it. But then it took the fire brigade, uh, they were the people that had to cut it. It took them an hour to cut it because it was such a hard chain to cut. So I'm sitting there for an and, hour. And right near her neck, I assume. Yes, yeah, yeah. And bearing in mind what we knew, 0%. Um, success rate. So in that hour, I'm starting to kick stones. You know, I'm really starting to worry my what head if? off. <laughs> the what? Yeah. Yeah. So people, and I, this is what I talk about today. And whenever I give this talk, um, you know, just uh, if you come up to me, Sam, and uh, one of my mates come up to me, another commander, and just patted me on the back. Al, you made the right decision. You know, it's just it's just taken <laughs> it's just taken a while. So ultimately, they cut it, and and everyone knows the outcome. Of it, but the next morning you, you you do wake up and think, oh, what if it didn't go that way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and so I mean, 
let's talk about the different because communication is obviously massively important as well as trying to align the different um, stakeholders yep. that were there. Uh, ambulance, fireys, police, defence. No, no, defence were in the background but I okay. wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah, the, the bomb okay. squads we would have been talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, and for something that we haven't real, we've never experienced in Australia, it is to try and get all the, and plus then you've also got the community, right, mm. which, which was also neighbours, yep. family members. I mean, that would have been such a major thing. I mean, was, what was the challenges around that? Well, that's, this is where, um, yeah, as when you're the person, the police commander and the Link Cafe was similar, um, you have to let people do what they're good at. So I, at, at the collar bomb, I had a, a couple of inspectors that set up the traffic plan, set up the exclusion zone, so the rest of the community could function. Yeah. And we had this massive big footprint where we could do our business. Um, uh, so that I only have to think about that. Then from a communication point of view, I give my phone to my staff officer uh, and I give my radio to my staff officer uh, and I only get involved if, if it's a particular person that wants to talk to me <laughs> or it's a relevant thing. Yeah. So I don't do any of that. Um, and then out of that, you just you just... Focus on the, the job Trust. at hand. Yeah. yeah, I mean the fireys, uh, they they cut the chain. That's their role. Yes. Yeah, well, in every state's probably different. The rescue squad cuts it. So okay. so, but the fireys had that task. Uh, that's where it fell to them. They the, they were the designated rescue organisation for yeah. that job. Yeah. So how do you get with them? Um, I think that was your question. Um, I'm big on. It's everyone. Everyone. If the more people involved, the more we know the information, mm. you're going to have a better idea than me. I don't have to have the idea. I, we just have to work together to get the idea. Yeah. Uh, so I just, you just create an environment where people are confident enough to do that. And, and yeah. that's what – like we had briefings every half an hour to an hour um, and then one of the pictures I've got in my presentation is this beautiful circle, two fireys, two ambos, two coppers, you know, and, and detectives and, and it tells a story. It's, yeah. That's, that's, that's how you get an outcome, working together. Uh, describe for us, Alan, the relief uh, once that was done and it was all safe and you removed it. And, uh, I mean, as, per, as a person in charge there at the scene, what was that like? It's pretty phenomenal. One of my staff, uh, the other inspector, he was a legend, he said that's why we, uh, that's why we became police officers, to be part of something like that. Yeah, and his exact words: "It makes you proud to be a police officer." That yeah. day, and then to see her face, like Madeline Paul, like she went through oh. a few. You know, took a, probably took a while to to get on top of it again. But you know, when you see her down the track, you know she's you've you've done some good. You see the family, you've done yeah. some, <laughs> yeah. and you see the police officers involved. You've done some good. Yes, yeah. uh, and she's doing remarkably well at the moment. I can see with her interior design stuff. Um, I haven't kept track of her now, but the last picture yeah. I saw, she looked amazing. You know, she yeah. looked, she's thriving. Yeah. Uh, um, so let, let's let's talk about the the traumatic side of things, that the potential risks that were involved. Yep. Um, so run us through that briefly. To myself, or to to, to the to, people to, that, to, to like the trauma plan that you never knew about um, until well, you just they just and probably things, they, yeah, you got to think about. Yeah. Well, it, it, you just that's where having. A relationship with your stakeholders um, uh, comes into it, like, and and being open. Like I've worked with some places where they don't talk to each other, yeah. and they blew with each other. Um, whereas that's never been my go. So, 
if we get on with each other, um, out of that will come out come some amazing outcomes. So just that's that's why I'm big on. You've got to work together. So yeah. So and the rule and the trust and uh, and being able to plan for worst case. Yes, and being honest enough to do it. Yeah. And so once once you knew that, I, that wasn't my task anymore. Like the ambulance commander and the fire brigade commander they looked after that. that. Okay. And I just well, there they are. And an example of um, like when you see the fireys in all their gear. Remember the Grenfell Tower fire in England in London. When was that? That was. Uh, only was it about three years four, ago, four three years? or four years yeah. ago. I remember there was a lot of blowback about the fire brigade lying on lying on the ground relaxing. It's because they're in all that gear. They can only last in that gear for half an hour um, yeah, yeah, before yeah. they need to be replaced. And yes. I think in the Grenfell fire, they, they were in that gear for at least an hour at a time. So they were exhausted. Yeah. So if you know the context, you know what's going on. And in, in the time, I mean, that's what matters is the people that are there knowing yeah. what's going on. That's, yeah. that, that's the key to it. Yeah. Uh, if we go then to 2014, yep. so almost four years later, December, yep. uh, we have um, a, a siege at the Lint Cafe in yep. Sydney. Yep. Tell us about uh, the role that you played with that as well. It was um, how, how does the same bloke be at this, both jobs was a bit weird. Um, I was asked to relieve by my boss, who's now the Commissioner of New South Wales, uh, Mick Fuller. He was an Assistant Commissioner, Mick Fuller, at that time of Central Metropolitan Region. He asked me to relieve as the commander at Sydney City for three months while the other commander went somewhere else for another promotional opportunity. So I was in the city, for, I'd been there for six weeks. I was actually on the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the car with the radio on and I heard that job come over. Um, our man's gone into the Link Cafe with a shotgun and a backpack. He's taken hostages. Uh, I heard one of the inspectors that I value a lot at uh, Sydney City. Um, he'd been on the air and said he's trying to ring the Link Cafe because that's where they get the coffee from. <laughs> and, uh, and no one's answering this. No one's answering the phone. So it sounds real. So I essentially get uh, do a U-turn on the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I know where to do it um, on the North Sydney side and come back again. I get on... I ring Assistant Commissioner Mick Fuller uh, at the time and say, this is going over the air, it sounds real, I'm on my way. And, and, then, and this is, you talked about communication, like you, 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 you kind of back each other, like he trusted me that I wasn't panicking about something that wasn't real. Um, so he, he walked off away from that phone call and set up a police operations centre in 10 minutes from that phone call. Um, and one of the things he did was, was pretty much, which I, I think is a very valid point, when you're going into a serious job like that, he, ha he took a critical friend with him, someone that he valued. Um, if I make a stupid decision, tell me. <laughs> so, so he was about, he was there, he was around at that point? He was in his own office in Surrey Hills. Okay. And the police operations centre is, he's say on level seven, police operations centre is level four. So he, he, went, he walked downstairs and set up a police incident command team. So I and I go to the the scene. I'm the police, what's called the police force commander, and on the way to the scene, this is what I've learnt from the collar bomb, um, and what I'm pretty big on now is you can set up a job on the way there. Um, so I got on the air and said, I want the police traffic commander for Sydney, the, the Sydney district, who I knew, Paul Founds. Um, I want him on the air. I want him to come to this job. I want, I want you to set up a traffic plan that isolates the Link Cafe but lets the, Sydney, the rest of Sydney function. Because if yeah. you shut S Sydney down, 
That's a disaster. <laughs> so so I, I called that on the air. Um, and he he went and did that. I didn't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. Uh, I also, because of the trauma plan, I called for an ambulance to, to start organising a trauma plan. Uh, my ignorance there was um, because it was at the level it was, our tactical operations police had, were already on the way there. They take the ambulance with them and they're already formulating a trauma plan if they have to go in. So... So the two things that probably I did over the air and then once I got there I had four inspectors of incredible talent um, and we, I gave two of them, one an ex-homicide investigator uh, and one an operations uh, duty officer that does all the big events in the city. You two guys evacuate the buildings in line of sight and, um, uh, and within the, our, our confines of an explosion um, and they, so they did that uh, and then... If you remember, if you've seen pictures of it, it was kind of like the collar bomb only on on steroids, I suppose. Yeah. Um, we made a big functional area where ambulance, fire brigade, and police could operate within it without without the members of the public being yes. there. Uh, and it looked orderly. It looked organised. We did all that in the first two hours. Wow. Yeah. And then I was um, I wasn't counterterrorism trained. Like at the at the collar bomb. And the Link Cafe, I wasn't a terrorism trained commander at that time. So after two hours, I was relieved by a terrorism qualified trainer. Uh, commander. Commander. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, when you first heard it, is it something that you thought, is this really happening in, in Sydney on my watch? Or is it something that you're like, automatically, you just kick in a gear and go, okay. I think the, the title of this. Uh, conference that I'm here today for for the next two days is a frontline mental health conference. So frontline officers know by the tone on the radio whether it's real or not. Yeah. So both those jobs, I didn't have to think about whether it was real. Um, but then probably the, what what the outcome out of what was different to the like the collar bomb was a success story. So it really wasn't there wasn't much inquisition or inquiry about what happened. In the Link Cafe, two people died. Um, so there was a massive inquest. That inquest was massively public and I was part of that inquest where I had to give evidence. Um, so, and I've never given evidence in a, an environment like that ever in my life before. I, I could be talking like, you, you could ask me a question, I would give an answer and I'd be, there'd be three or four other barristers lining up to ask me the next question. And I'd walk out of here for lunch and you just ask me the questions and I give them maybe a, you know, a 10-line answer uh, and when I go out into the foyer of the courthouse on the TV is my response already broadcast to the whole world about what I said. Wow. So I've never, ever done anything like that in my life. The police, New South Wales police, um, for me in particular, um, at the, because of the evidence I had to give, were majorly supportive. We had a peer, like our senior police psychologist um, uh, prepare us before we went in. They sat with me before I went in. Then we had more, you know, coffee before I went in. Sat in the back of the court with me, and then they were there after it. I was uh, equally kind of blessed, I suppose. My wife's a detective inspector who wasn't involved in the Link Cafe, so she sat in the back of the court with me. Okay. So I didn't have to go home and talk about it. Um, and then, so I think I was pretty well. Pretty some cops, some police officers that went through that ordeal. Didn't take those options. Yeah. Um, what a lot of us did once you, you knew how intense it was, 
you helped each other, you, you rang people, you met, had coffee with them, made sure they're okay. Um, but what I got out of that kind of coming forward, like you have some pretty sleepless nights over that. You have some, you, you do go down the, the rabbit hole a little bit. Yeah. Um, you get, you, you seek some help for it. I'm pretty open about that. I got help from police psychs and my own personal psych um, about it. And I think being that open about it, your own staff get an understanding of that. Um, and then what it uh, enabled me to do was my staff, um, in a totally unrelated event, had to give evidence against one of their own sergeants in a pervert the course of justice, a criminal matter, in a, in a district court trial. So all the help that we'd got in the Link Cafe, I replicated for the, all those police officers that had to go through that. So the, the same psychs looked after them before their evidence, during their evidence and after their evidence. And I wouldn't have known that mm -hmm. if I hadn't have been in the Link Cafe. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and only, so there's probably about 10 officers involved in that. And that particular sergeant ended up going to jail for 12, 12 months. Um, so out of all those young constables that gave evidence at that pretty challenging trial, only one of them had a blip where they were probably off for about two months and then came back again, stronger than ever. So because of... Support. Because of the support and because of what I'd learnt in the Link Cafe. You know, I'd had the, it made me realise if I hadn't had that experience, I couldn't have paid it forward. Yeah. If we go back to the Link Cafe, I mean, this, the support mechanisms in place after the event... Uh, I mean, did you have anything to do with that? Or were you across any of that stuff, the support that was available to people, um, uh, you know, the attending staff uh, about, you know, the possible psychological impact of such a traumatic event? Not – I I was aware – I helped some other people at Sydney City because you, you, some people had it already been to um, some pretty bad jobs beforehand, so that – Put them off for a while and until you experience it you don't realize that's going off i think one of the things i've learned you asked me does the job put you off the, the one big incident i don't think it's the one incident i think it's your exposure to incidents leading up to that and then i think in uh, there's a fair bit of research in police culture and maybe all first responder cultures um sometimes it's the it's the way you're treated at a managerial level that reduces your resilience um, to when the big job happens and the big job happens, you might might have been okay if you hadn't had all the managerial rubbish yeah. leading up to it. Um, I think Al, Al Sparks talks about that as well. Yeah. Um, it's not sometime the job, it's just the last straw. Yes. And, uh, I mean, has going through those two incidents, which... Most people would never think they'd have to go through such a thing. Yep. What's been the key learnings that you've taken away from that you're now applying with what you're doing? Preparing your staff, preparing our community, practice, practice, practice. Um, so some of the some like we've done some major jobs, major exercises since then. So we practice with. Um, Emergency wards from hospitals, uh, Westfields, all the transport networks, all you know, councils in big um, locations. And we practice with principals um, of schools. We practice some pretty challenging jobs. And out of that, um, you start to learn people's capabilities. 
Um, and so an example of that is, uh, and we start to trust each other. And it's pretty simple to do. Like we just have, we put people on a stage, probably like one of these places here. You put five, five or six tables around it, and as each as each incident develops, like a murder in a murder in a uh, emergency ward, then uh, a fatal accident, um, a murder in a Westfields, and then uh, something that threatens the the trains working, all in all in a space of two hours, that kind of job. Um, so you learn each other's capabilities, and out of that, um, you start to have an understanding of what each other needs. And then what happened um, after we practiced all that? Uh, five young guys went into Westfields at Chatswood uh, at the start of last year with pistol, fake pistols. Um, and because we'd practiced, 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 um, we resolved that pretty quickly without a fatality um, in a highly professional way, yeah. working with Westfields, working with everyone. So it kind of gives people the confidence, I've practiced this yeah. in, a, in a safe environment. And, out, and then they're okay. And so that wasn't previously being done to that extent? Not really. No. With, no. with multiple um, stakeholders, obviously, no. together? Not so simply. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of the times we try and do these major practice things where we're out there for a whole day, we never actually work with each other, and we're just twiddling our thumbs. Whereas this type of te example, and again, doing it, we prepared this with my mates. The fire brigade commander, the ambulance commander, and myself, and we, what can we do? And that's how we came up with something that you could do, and it, and it works. It really works. But you talk about building a response capability in a workplace where relationships are positive, respectful, yep, uh, and supportive to be the cornerstone of good outcomes. Is that the key thing that's now driving you? Totally, totally. As we need to know that we're valued in a workplace and we need to know that we're going to be protected in a workplace like it, it's not okay for me to have a go at someone because of their gender sex religion or yeah. race it's and so the minute and it's i can't as a commander like i say i had 255 people i can't do that on my own no. if everyone knows that they're going to do that um it gets momentum and where i started to knew know that we were on on the way People are worried about me. Like we all have our, we bring our personal challenges sometimes to work. Like they knew I had some um, health issues with my family, yes. uh, and I'd go around work walking around the, the the three levels of the command, and staff would come up to me. Don't worry about us, boss. Are you okay? So you know you're starting the the culture. It's something that yeah. happens. It's something that evolves. If we fast, not fast forward, but if we go now, Alan, to where you are and what you're doing, yep. tell us about that as a result of that experience. What are you now into and tell us about that. So I'm looking to just go into workplaces. Like I'm, I'm retired now, so but I yes. still think I've got something to offer because of those experiences. So I'm going into workplaces that are challenged with uh, maybe not a safe culture. Maybe um, they want to test their risk exposure to different things so we went into a, an environment in in canberra just recently uh, and tested um uh another organization's responses to a, a major incident in a in a in a in a, I, can't, I don't want to give their their name but no, um right. in, in a in, in a particular big risk situation out of that we built trust uh, by doing the exercises we built um uh, a capability but we'll we and 
out of that they 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 were confident that they could do more going forward that they didn't they didn't have that level of um skill before i suppose skills the wrong word but a level yeah. of um confidence yes which which practice brings you yes um when you do that more often and frequently we're not just talking about um uh, we're not just talking about ambulance, fire. We're not anyone. just talking about. That. We're talking about corporates. Yes, you, you're talking about. You're doing this with any workplace culture. Anyone, anyone that wants it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do some because um, uh, I'm an ex-investigator as well. So I still, I'm still doing some workplace investigations, um, okay. and that seems to be the most common thing: workplace bullying. Yeah. So I, I don't think we understand how, you know, in the leadership world of things, um, I. If I sit down to you and have a conversation with you as my direct report, you know, well, I'll go into you. I'll, I'll talk to you about how um, how you're going, and if it's around, you, you haven't had a conversation with your direct line report that's threatening that supportive, kind culture. I'll have the conversation with you. I won't go. I won't jump you to talk to the next person. And how how we kind of created that um, that environment is um, what's our purpose. So for us at in the in in North Shore Police Area Command. Our purpose was to benefit the front line and benefit the community. So the minute you stepped out of that, it was pretty simple. So every organisation has a purpose. Yeah. And then it's about holding each other accountable to that purpose. How frequently is this sort of thing recommended to be undertaken? Well, I think you know, if, you, if you know that you're, um, you're not doing it, if you haven't asked the question, yeah. and if you uh, have what's my exposure in an organisation to workplace bullying or to... To mental health issues, um, if you haven't asked the question, it should be something we should be doing. So, Alan, it's almost like a two-pronged thing. So, on one hand, you're going in. You actually you can do simulations. Yes. You know, on one hand, where you get the the different um, parties involved, and you you do simulations of a major incident. But second to that, there's uh, uh, which is maybe where you're spending most of your time at the moment is probably more in the organizational cultural yes. aspect of things to improve that um, and mitigate bullying harassment yes. all that sort of stuff well, they're so linked yeah and if like if you trust each other in in an environment you're going to do anything for, if you don't trust them you're not going to do anything you're going to let the person sink yes and in our world or in any whether it's a frontline organization or whether it's a corporate culture you can't afford to have people let you sink yes because we're in it together that makes sense, um, but unfortunately, out there we still have some major problems, which you probably see firsthand. I mean, how do you think we're going with a lot of the the workplace cultures out there at the moment? It's um, you see some wonderful stuff, but then you see some pretty disappointing stuff. Like yeah. my my daughter is a um, has just finished her psychology degree, first class honors degree oh. in psych, um, and her speciality is gender equality. We've got a long way to go. Yeah. Like if you think about what happened to that lady in London in the last couple of days, mm. um, a lady's killed and a lot of the narrative is what was she wearing? Was she doing the right thing? That's not right. Yeah. That's not how – like my, my wife and daughter and even my wife's sister, we live in a pretty beautiful part of Sydney where we can go for these beautiful bush walks. walks um, and my wife's sister went on the walk with my wife the other day. She said, do you come down in here on your own? And as a man, I would never think of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we don't often think of that, no, do we? No, I think. And uh, what I what I see it as a white Australian, white Caucasian male, 
I'm I'm oblivious to what it's like to be a woman. Yeah, and then it's all the rest of it. Uh, yeah. and, and we're currently seeing the um, you know a fair bit of attention with women's rights as well, given what's happened in the political sense and and what's going on there. Uh, I mean, it seems to be still happening. You know, unfortunately, these in some of these cultures and in, in workplaces, and and this can be in anyone's organisation, I guess. Mm. But it still seems that it's evident that uh, harassment, uh, bullying, sexual harassment is still uh, a very yeah. uh, dominant thing that's happening in a lot of workplace cultures, which needs to be stamped out. I totally, and this is my, my biggest thing's been over the years is leadership. Yeah. So leadership doesn't have to be a superintendent, Alan Sicard. A leadership can be at any level. All it needs to happen in all the things you just said, uh, workplace bullying, sexual harassment, harassment, discrimination, whatever, yeah. all that needs to happen is that any leader at whatever leave level, and that can be the, the cleaner, yes. um, says, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> if you, and that's all I've ever been on about, if someone says you can't do that at the right time and then someone else backs up, it only needs one or two leaders normally. Yes. It stops. Yeah. But in, anything, in the ones that we know where it happens, no one, what you started the conversation with, uh, what you walk past today, you accept tomorrow. Um, the minute that happens, it, the, the drip, the, yeah. the, the inflammation of the cancer, yeah. just continues to happen. And all I'm, all I'm on about is to have the courage to build a culture that it's okay to say you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it, you're right. And the other thing, I, I, the other saying that I, I remember uh, frequently is you get what you tolerate. And so if you continue to tolerate something, you, uh, you will continue to get it. So what I'm talking about is fellow workers to mm. say, well, if you're going to walk past that or tolerate someone being spoken to like that yep. it's not going to stop until something's done about it yes um, and it takes like you said it takes courage yes to to go first and what, what i learned um in the last few years as a commander like i was fortunate that um the last command i had i could actually pick my command team and pick our pick our purpose and then what we were going to do as a command team so i i, I we went away for a couple of days as a command team once once we'd picked selected everyone and it was all on merit and i said we're adults we can we can disagree with each other we can call each other everything under the sun but once we've had that disagreement we're a united front when we go out uh, yeah and, and we're all different that's our strength um and, and we under we appreciate people our our differences so i never want to hear anyone in the in that team bagging each other to someone else yeah and out of that starts to become the courage, the strength, yes, appreciating differences. And you need to be willing to say what needs to be said in a respectful way, obviously, totally. but, but to have that courage to have the candid conversations almost is important because otherwise you do will say it to someone else unrelated to the person that you should be saying it to yeah. and that doesn't help anything. No. And I, I've, 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 I've kind of lost count of the times i've been told that's a stupid idea boss um and i'll listen to it you know i've i, I can't, couldn't tell you how many times i've heard that <laughs> and uh, you got to listen to it yeah <laughs> and that's that breeds the environment where they'll do it yes yeah. alan uh as we look to the the future i mean what what uh is in store for you firstly and secondly 
Where do you see the shift in organisational culture? I think um, what, where I, what's in store for me is what I just talked about. I want to be able to... I, I still think, even though I'm a retired 40-year veteran of a New South Wales police, um, I've got something to offer in changing a culture to a supportive, kind culture. Where we've got to go with it, I think we've got a long way to go. Like, if I think about what I was taught as a commander in my last couple of years around identifying mental health in the workplace, not much, Yeah. really. Um, are we, at a command level, held accountable to it? Not at all. Um, maybe I'd like to see a shift um, in the future. If you're a commander, a CEO, a manager of people, one of the tests on how effective you are should be how many people have you killed or hurt? No. Not kills the wrong word. Yes. How many people have you damaged through your style? Yes. Like one of the things I talk about regularly is um, what do people think when you leave the room? What do they people think when you walk in the room? What do they mm. people, you know, what, what, how do people feel after you leave the room? Are they thinking, thank God, yeah. or, or, or I want more of you? Yes. So I think the future sh around leaders, at, at whatever, whatever organisation we're talking about, part of the measure should be what effect do you have on people? How do you yeah. leave people? Um, like there's a really good Simon Sinek thing. Um, I think that's how you say it. Yeah, Simon uh, Sinek. Yep. Uh, he says... Um, you know, when all this downturn happened, um, a lot of CEOs were judged on how many people they sacked so that the business could be maintained. Whereas some CEOs said, I'm never going to sack my people. Let's just work out a different way of, so doing, that, it. of doing it and maximising our... Like, well, I think some people took... As a team. Yeah, as a team. Took one day a week less leave. They took a... Yes. You know, uh, and the team thrived. Sacrificing, you know, a little bit of everybody for the greater good of the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, to me, what leadership should be. Yes. And where, like, if I think about what leaders are, there's a, there's leaders that look after their people, and that there's leaders that are chasing the president's job. Yeah. Um, I think they're two different leaders. Mm. Sometimes, not all the time, but yeah. sometimes. <laughs> That's no, interesting. Um, uh, Alan, it, how can people get in touch with you? Um, I've got a website. So uh, my website is rrrconsulting.com.au uh, or Alan Sickard at rrrconsulting.com.au. Um, uh, and uh, my mobile number is 0447 44339. And Alan, is there any, uh, any other word you want to say in closing? Anything else you want to touch on? Um, I really, again, uh, feel quite privileged and humbled that you asked me to be part of this, Sam. Um, and I hope um, I'd just like to help people at all levels. Like one, of the, one of the books I love to read is um, uh, The Courage to Be Disliked. Um, uh, I've never all, heard of it. Who, yeah. Who's the author in that? It's based. It's a. It's this Japanese author, okay. um, but it's based on Alfred Adler's psychology okay. uh, um, ideals. He was around when Freud was around, but went a different way. Um, and one of the things um, there's all these different little sayings, but ones old people walk behind young people, 
and I yeah. never knew what that meant. But uh, uh, now I think I do know what it means. Um, young people are like if you think about um, Greta Thornburg, yes, uh, and and even Jacinda Ardern, like they're all young, younger yeah. people. Um, they're courageous enough to challenge the system, but old blokes like me um, have been around and rattled around the system and know how to work the system. Like one of my other gigs was um, I was the homelessness sponsor uh, and really made a lot of changes around homelessness and, oh, and, wow. and kind of getting challenging why are we doing it different ways. So I think an old bloke like me and old people like me have been around can walk behind young people and help them navigate to make a better world. Yes. In all the things we talked about, like uh, discrimination, yes. gender equality, climate change, all that kind of stuff. And let's work together. Like Because I'm 60, I'm 60 next year, I'm not dead. Yeah. I've got a lot of life left in me yeah. to, to, to be part of the next generation. Well, it certainly seems like you are leading the way in this space anyway, Alan, and, and someone with so much experience, it's great that you're out there educating, bringing awareness uh, putting those supportive um, structures in place, helping people uh, and and not willing to just sit down but get up and change the culture actively by going out there and, and helping that in the workplace. So we appreciate your effort and, uh, and mate, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Sam. Ta. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.